am delighted to be joined by Isabel Thomas. Um, Isabel is a science writer and children's author. She's written more than 180 books about science and nature for young audiences, which have been translated into more than 20 languages. She also writes features for children's science magazines and creates content for science outreach projects to inspire children from diverse backgrounds to pursue science careers. Welcome, Isabel. Great to have you uh, as part of this discussion. Oh, it's lovely to be with you. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, so we're going to start with um, six opening questions. Um, then we'll go into your three top tips. Um, and then we'll, um, we have one question submitted by a member of the ISN community, um, which would be great to get your, your thoughts on. And Thank so, you. yeah, moving <laughs> straight into my first question. Um, why should educators think about writing or becoming an author? I think it's a brilliant background for going into writing. Um, I mean, I think of myself as a nonfiction author. I've always thought of myself as an educator, except that I'm working mainly in print, but I also do a lot of live workshops as well, as you said in the intro. So I've always seen right from the beginning when I was working in textbook publishing, that experience in teaching is just the ideal background to begin writing for young audiences, and obviously especially educational and academic texts. First of all, you're spending so much time with your target audience as a teacher, and you have an amazing understanding of not only the curriculum itself, what they're studying, but the level of background knowledge they bring at each age and also what children are interested in beyond the curriculum. So you've got all these um, ideas at your hand to kind of engage them and you already know how to make a strong connection when you're teaching. And you've also got a really good idea of areas that are really tricky to teach or areas that children are, are naturally very interested in or places where there are gaps in the market where better educational texts are needed. So there's so much as an educator that you can bring into developing ideas and writing fantastical educational books. And then, and vice versa too, there's also a lot to gain as an educator. You know, writing a book or an article about a subject is just a fantastic way to deepen your subject knowledge and to explore lots of new aspects of that subject that you might then be able to bring to your teaching. Brilliant. And, and how easy is the journey to, uh, to getting published? Well, everyone's journey is completely different. So there's no kind of one answer to that. My own um, background, my own introduction to publishing was really straight through university. And I began working in-house with an educational publisher. So at first I was working, I was a science graduate. And at first I was working on um, science and math textbooks for a big textbook publisher. And then gradually sort of moved into non-fiction reference book publishing. So things aimed at school libraries and um, books a lot like this kind of hardback, um, very subject focused books that you find lots of in school libraries. Um, and this was kind of an apprenticeship in a way. And I did gain lots of useful experience, you know, as an editor, you often get hands on with writing too. But the biggest thing it gave me was it totally demystified the process of going into writing. You know, I saw firsthand that authors don't just magically churn out perfect prose the first time 
And we weren't even choosing the authors because they had tons and tons of writing experience. So we were really looking at other qualities for these educational authors, things like deep subject knowledge and the, the kind of interest in the subject beyond their own classrooms, the kind of teachers that would naturally get involved in helping other teachers create resources, getting involved with exam boards and things like that. And they had a really deep understanding of how new knowledge is scaffolded and introduced in their classroom. So they can obviously translate that into writing too. Um, and I noticed that great authors also have a really good understanding of the pressures student teachers are under and what sorts of things you can include in books and, and sort of other digital resources to make life easier in the classroom. And equally, you know, people have educators have an appreciation of what should be left out of a text as well that often if you're just a subject expert coming into writing and you, you have no classroom experience then you, you tend to want to kind of pack everything in and you think books are kind of key but obviously educators know there's so much going on in the classroom um, and, and books and, and resources need to work around all of that so that's something that I gave from working in house and publishing and obviously educators will bring from all their time in the classroom too. And the craft of writing itself is something that can be learned with practice and, and just gets better and better with time. So I think really, whatever background you're coming from, the key thing is just to start, you know, start developing your ideas, start pitching and don't wait until you think you have this perfect polished manuscript um, that you've been working on for years and years. Just get out there, start pitching your ideas. Doesn't matter if you get turned down, first of all, just get your name and your kind of your CV, your covering letter into the hands of publishers. And then you'll see that all sorts of opportunities start to kind of arise. <laughs> And just just a quick question off that. Um, what 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 does a pitch look like? So if someone's really interested in in, in publishing their their ideas and their insights and their expertise, um, what what how long should that be? You know, what 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 just just a rough rough idea of what that process looks like of developing a, a pitch and a brief to to send out. Yeah, again, there's not hard and fast rules. You find that a lot of writing advice you see online just agonizes over exactly what format a pitch should be in and and that's really because it's actually hard to teach writing itself it's just a matter of sitting down and sort of getting things done so people tend to focus I think too much on exactly what a pitch should look like and trying to make it very perfect actually you know you, you're writing stuff as part of your job all the time you know how to write and communicate with professionals so just a kind of simple um shortish concise um summary of what your idea is maybe with any sample text maybe you've been already writing some resources in classroom and you want to kind of develop those into a text to show other educators or even parents and you can include a small sample of that with your letter so just write a simple letter explaining what your background is and why you're so interested in writing how you're in touch with your target audience and um, give that kind of summary of your idea and a little bit of sample text, but keep it concise. You don't need to kind of talk on and on and you don't need to sort of include lots of phrases about your passion for writing and so on. And um, just simple, straightforward communications. And as I say, if it doesn't, if that particular idea doesn't chime with the publisher or they've already got something similar in development, now your name and your background is with them and in their minds. So they're more likely then to reach out to you if they have other projects that would be suitable for you. And how should potential authors figure out or think about who their audience is? So I suppose if you were writing about nonfiction, say you were an expert and I don't know, 
tortoises, you might think, I'm starting tortoises, I need to figure out who is my audience. But I think with educational texts and the way that educational publishers work, it's the other way around. So the audience is the starting point, and that is who you think should be thinking from right from the start. It's not an afterthought. It will guide what you're going to write about because you're identifying, you know, what don't we have? What don't we have that we need? What don't readers have that they really need? So that's really your starting point. And so if I was an educator starting out writing for the first time, I would look first to the age group I understand best, you know, and the subjects that I am most comfortable with and begin there. And it can also really help if you spend lots of time looking at existing publications. So if you really, you know, your biology teacher, you really want to write about tortoises, for example, look up as many books for young readers as you can find in that area. And you might start to notice that most are pitched at a particular age group, um, which suggests that they're either very popular with that age group, in which case publishers will be looking to publish new books on that topic every year, or they're really needed by educators for that age group, which is also a massive advantage. Um, and it's not to say that you, you know, you can't break the rules or bend the pattern there. For example, um, quantum physics, as we know, doesn't feature on any primary school curriculum, any elementary school curricula, but a quick Google will show you, you know, pop up even books on quantum physics for babies. I mean, of course, obviously the real, you know, you could argue the real audience there is adults, but it just shows you can make just about any subject work for any age group, um, if you think about it really hard. So a good example I can give you from my own career. I probably first came across, I first studied evolution, I suppose, at secondary school, fairly late in my science education, and then in great detail at university when I was an undergraduate in human sciences and evolutionary biology. And I, I always kind of thought the story, the classic story you learn as a teenager about the peppered moths and natural selection would be so fantastic to help um, younger children explain, um, sort of understand the building blocks of evolution, if you like. So um, when the time was right, I pitched a picture book um, on the story of the peppered moth. And I wasn't sure how publishers would react to that, but um, one editor really saw the potential and it became what's my best selling book, which is Moth and Evolution Story, um, which introduces um, natural selection as the mechanism of evolution to children as young as four. And you you know, you can see, I read it aloud, you see teachers saying, well, you know, the children, they really get it. And also we as educators have kind of understood it properly for the first time. So if you approach a topic, no matter um, how difficult it might seem from your own past learning it, if you approach it in the right way, you really can tackle any topic for any age group. But I think the thing is, is to really dive in there and understand that age group and what they're likely to know already and what you're gonna really need to scaffold from them and what other background knowledge you're going to give them. Um, so you want to look at what's been published in the past and maybe the school library is a good starting point, um, but you know you need to go and spend time in bookshops, but also spend time exploring publishers resources. So if you're looking at educational publishers, you're wanting to look at their catalogs, not what has come out 
years and years ago, which we're using in school, but what is coming out right now? What are they promoting right now? And even looking ahead, if you look at rights catalogs, for example, and sales catalogs, you can see what publishers are gonna be bringing out in a couple of years time. So you can sort of see what sorts of direction they're going on. Um, and this is really, really useful background as well. So you're not just relying on outdated resources when you're kind of doing your initial scan of the market. And, and how should potential authors ensure they are uh, considering non-native English speakers um, when, when writing? Yeah, I think this is where experience working in international settings and international schools is a massive plus because everything I write for educational markets and for trade markets too, um, sometimes for slightly different reasons, which I'll go into in a second, um, for educational markets, you, you need to be inclusive for children and different cultural backgrounds. And this often means thinking carefully about how to cover certain subjects, maybe subjects that are considered taboo in certain cultures to be able to cover them sensitively because um, they might not be read, you know, even if you're writing a classroom read or a textbook, there will be occasions where children are reading independently and they might not have an adult on hand to help them kind of interpret the text. So you, you need to be sensitive about subjects which in certain cultures are very, very difficult and won't be discussed maybe openly in the home. But you also need to think about subjects that might cause total confusion. Um, and that can be sometimes surprising. So I remember working in textbook publishing, there would be always a problem. And we used to publish textbooks for the UK and the US at the same time. And it would always be frowned on when we wanted to either mention or include a picture of an electric kettle, which in the UK is an everyday kitchen item. And it seems you know, <laughs> used by everyone. Um, but in the US, uh, the team would always say, well, no, we don't use kettles here. <laughs> I, was, no, I didn't really understand. And I didn't fully understand until I actually went to the US myself and saw that they really aren't that common in kitchens. And it's, it's you know, due to the fact that the power um, supply to homes just makes electric kettles work far more slowly in the UK. So it's not a very attractive option for heating up water. So there's this kind of, there's these kind of differences which you can't really understand until you spend time in a different country, in a different culture. Um, but just be aware of those and, and sort of try and figure them out first so you don't go too far down one track and your book doesn't totally rely on um, something which isn't recognised elsewhere. For example, if you're writing about animals, and this has come up when I've been writing library reference books, um, I wrote a series about animals that live close to humans. And in the UK, hedgehog was fine. Uh, but in the US, people don't generally recognize hedgehogs. So in the US, we replaced that with a book on raccoons instead. But again, that would not work in Europe. People just wouldn't see them as everyday sort of animals. So, so things like that you need to think of um, when you're planning projects. But also down to the sentence level, you know, in your language that you're using, you want to avoid kind of idioms and colloquialisms that won't be widely understood. Um, either because your book is going to children who are speaking English as an additional language, um, so they might not recognise those kind of terms and they don't want to come across too much in a text that, you know, they can't interpret easily. But also because if you're writing books which are likely to be translated, if you're writing books that the kind of books which are going bookshops, which we say, you know, for the trade, which will be sold directly to parents, and they're likely to be widely translated around the world. It's really difficult to translate things like that. Um, 
easily. So that's something that might put off potential publishers if something is very, very localized. But as I say, I think that people working in international schools have a really good awareness of the types of things that might cause issues. So it's a great starting point. And, and when thinking about the purpose of, of your piece, before you begin writing the, the writing process, do you have a clear idea of this or does this sort of naturally evolve? Yeah, I suppose. I know when I know, when we teach um, nonfiction writing in schools, we often talk about text types and we're teaching children, you know, think about the purpose of your text. Are you informing? Are you persuading? Are you discussing here? Uh, what are you trying to kind of do with this text type? Now, it's not, I think that's, you know, useful when you're learning to write, but I will tell children this too. I say, well, really, you're kind of trying to do all of these things in one text. You're not just kind of pinning down and following a rigid set of rules because what you're trying to do with any type of text you know whether it's like a sales brochure or it's an essay or you know even a kind of reference book you need to provoke a range of emotions as your reader is reading it's the only way to keep them interested and of course one very famous way to do this is through story um, we're all familiar with the story arc it's kind of embedded in us as we listen to stories as young children and a story will take us on an emotional journey but even if you're not writing narrative nonfiction. Um, and your, your nonfiction is to deliver subject knowledge, you still have to rely on that emotional connection to get the reader to want to read in the first place and then to get them to retain the information afterwards to kind of feel that topic's important. So you need to think about your, your kind of opening, um, your whole approach to the book. You need to sell that content to the reader. So you're gonna to need to make a strong emotional connection right from the title onwards. And then on every page, you want them to think, okay, I read the first sentence, this page is, is worth reading. I'm gonna keep on reading it. Um, so you're continually trying to persuade them that this book is worth their time and they shouldn't just close it and go off and play on their games console or something else like that. Um, so sometimes, you know, you might seek to slightly scare them or alarm them um, as a rising sense of danger or peril is kind of a key thing in a narrative. And, you know, all teachers will kind of know the power of something slightly gross or unexpected, disgusting to get a class's attention. And that can work in writing too. Obviously, you need to think carefully about the age level. You don't want young children to come away really scared and worried about something. So it's about kind of getting, just getting the balance right, really. And then every text equally for children um, will seek to reassure them. You'll notice that the more you explore different um, types of nonfiction text, you'll notice that kind of whatever happens early on, you'll always kind of come around to a reassuring conclusion. And that's a massive part of any book that I write for young audiences. Um, and it's not just kind of about, you know, over time I found it's not, it's not about just giving some kind of reassuring words or facts I think a lot of it comes down to giving children a real sense of agency so if you spend a whole if you you know do a book length piece about um, biodiversity or climate change 
or um, you know the pressures of dealing with friends and the difficult emotions you can't just kind of give them the content and leave it hanging you need to provide some kinds of practical steps some some sense to them they have agency and they have a power to make change in their lives um, I think that's what makes a text really satisfying for a young person where they feel that they can close the book and go off and do something differently in their lives and make a difference and you've told them what options there are for doing that. So would you would you say inspiring them is quite a is quite a key key purpose and like you said to give them agency to act on what what they've what they've engaged with in in the text because I suppose if it's yeah if it's entirely uh, you know doom and gloom and then and then it ends with a sort of a negative note it's probably not the most not the most inspiring thing for a student or, or young young student is it? No, I mean I think that what you you want to be absolutely inspired by your subject anyway and then I think that really comes through in your writing because you're then working in all the things that make you very excited about the subject so hopefully they'll be inspired by the topic and it's just about adding that extra sense that they have something to offer to the world in this area and that's obviously going to depend on the subject but I've noticed that quite a lot of the educational topics I'm writing now um, publishers are very keen for children to see how they can get into certain jobs or areas of work, for example, that they may not come across because they haven't got high science capital or haven't got high social capital. They might not come across like family friends and family members working in those jobs. So in a book um, or in an article, you can kind of fill those gaps and provide information that helps them take those next steps. So there's lots of different ways to inspire. And I think it's about what's kind of um, appropriate to that subject in that age level, uh, but just assume that children will be more satisfied with your book if there are ways for them to get hands on and get involved and start doing practical things. And my final uh, opening question is, um, uh, what, what kind of um, opportunities are, are there for, for authors? Yeah, I mentioned, I mentioned, first of all, that it's a brilliant way to feed back into your own teaching and your subject knowledge and your own kind of boost your own love of your subject area, if you like. Um, and as a non-fiction author, and especially one who's also got teaching experience, you're so well placed to run, you know, events outside of your own classroom and school and share that extra specialist knowledge you develop while you write the book. So I love, for example, running workshops and author visits to schools and planning, you know, how my book will work as a kind of live event, like a live version of that book. So I suppose I'm doing almost the opposite of coming from teaching and developing it into book form. Um, and of course, the content's presented very differently, but the two things really support each other. So I think there are a lot of opportunities for leading events once you've kind of started to write nonfiction and educational texts. You could be pitching yourself to local schools and um, places like museums and festivals. You could be running sessions in bookstores and libraries. And events are a really, really nice way to keep in touch with your readers. And also, you know, you kind of come out of an event with loads of new ideas as well. So they really kind of feed to each other. And I'd say also don't just like focus on books. When we use the word author, we, we think of books. Um, but as you're, as you're kind of practicing nonfiction writing, practicing educational writing, you're developing 
these skills of kind of doing in-depth research you, you know you're finding out a lot about how do you write at the right level for a certain age group how do you build a story a piece that kind of both educates and entertains and these skills are in demand you know widely outside book publishing so companies charities organizations think about who else wants to create resources for young people you know children's magazines and science centers and then of course there's a whole raft of educational websites blogs and vlogs vlogs so much digital content so writing all these different kinds and pitching all these different kinds of non-fiction content will help to keep your voice and your ideas fresh i i never say kind of lock yourself away and force yourself to write a book length piece first of all um there's loads of other ways to reach your audience if you have an idea that's close to your heart but you're finding that publishers do not have a demand for it um so for an example from my own career is is writing about um a child's experience of having a relative with dementia and what what that experience over time and helping them understand science and 2000 around 2015 you know I wanted to write about this but there wasn't a demand from publishers they thought well you know it's, it's very expensive to produce a book and you have to be sure that there's a very wide audience and they couldn't necessarily see how they'd reach that audience but I ended up working with Alzheimer's Research UK which is a charity to develop a website for them so there's there's lots of ways to get into writing and to work on subjects that are really important to you and reach those readers. Excellent stuff. Brilliant. And now we move on to your, your three top tips. Um, yeah, so diving straight into your, your first top tip, Isabel. Oh, yeah, it's really hard to come up with just three. But I was trying to think of things that are most kind of useful as you get started, I suppose, thinking about some like rookie errors, I suppose, that I've seen over time working with other authors. So... I think a big challenge that I found when I was starting off in educational writing was that I was worried that if I strayed too far from the texts I was reading as part of my research from the kind of expert view of a subject, that somehow the content would no longer be accurate enough. So I was very, you know, I obviously have to present my own interpretation of that content, but I was nervous about going too far off piste and over time I've really learned to sort of loosen up with my writing and, and that doesn't you know that doesn't matter and to really not to mask my unique voice and sort of try and create some um, generic non-fiction educational voice but actually quite the opposite to really bring my own voice to the fore because that's what's valuable to the publishers to distinguish my books from those of any other writer but it's also so valuable for the readers because it becomes something that's more like a conversation it becomes a much much easier to make an emotional connection on the page if I'm using like my full self and not just my sort of inner like well, what should a non-fiction voice sound like um I mean there is a market for text that could be written by anyone um there's obviously uh opportunities to write for wikipedia there's obviously um huge encyclopedia type text where you'd want to be writing in a generic voice 
But I think the sooner that you can develop something distinctive, which reflects your personality, the better. And that's what's going to make publishers want to use you again and again, rather than other writers. So I've been obviously doing this for more than 15 years now, and I tend to be, tend to work in a number of different author voices. Um, so you can have things that I don't know if I've got a copy of humorous things like for the week junior or this book. I've only got a copy in Spanish today, but this is called This Book Is Not Rubbish in the UK and This Book Is Not Garbage in the US and um, something that I can't really read in Spanish and Portuguese. <laughs> um, my language skills are a bit rubbish, but these are very humorous approach, kind of making jokes, um, making kind of side comments to try and raise a smile among readers like the older readers and I also write in a style that's very poetic, poetic and kind of lyrical picture book style and that's things like Moth and that the follow-up book Fox um, if you find a copy of these in the library and have a look you'll see it's completely different style We're using all poetic devices um, and a sort of gentle flowing narrative more of a sort of bedtime or or calm read and then even when I'm writing a chunky reference text um you know of up to 100,000 words something like um this book exploring the elements um which is is really aimed at kind of young teenagers and has a lot of words it's still not like what you'd find on wikipedia it i still try and get my excitement across and my wonder at the topic in basically every sentence um, and you can see this if you scan reviews, you know, pick any kind of nonfiction writer and have a look at different reviews for their work. And you'll see that reviewers will pick up on the style. One example for um, this book is not rubbish. Um, and this was from a Guardian review. The reviewer Imogen Russell Williams has written Isabel writes in a can-do register with an underlying note of steel um, in a way that prompts enthusiasm rather than despair. So it's very much just because you're writing nonfiction doesn't mean that your voice doesn't matter as an author. It's just as important as it is in fiction. And people will pick up on that very quickly and it will make all the difference to um, whether people actually want to keep reading the book and, and then act on you know what you're saying in the book so it partly comes with time you can't really replace you can't sort of shortcut in a way you need to practice writing and it doesn't matter if that writing is published or not you know just write what you want to write and you'll see your voice emerging um we can feel a bit of a blank page panic and a bit stilted when we start off writing so sometimes it's easiest to kind of do a chunk of research and then just go and chat with a friend about it or even better chat with someone of your target age group so it might be the children that you teach for example um, or the children in a different class if you're writing for a different level and you'll you might notice that just when you start talking about the subject area, you start in a very different place than you might if you were trying to start on paper and you were trying to follow conventions. Um, notice the language that you use, you know, it might even record the conversation if you have permission. Note down the kinds of questions that the people ask. Where are they asking you for more knowledge? Where do you need to put some more content in? What are they most interested in? Where do their eyes light up? Where do they sort of start to, to glaze a bit and drift off? And then work out how you can bring that into your own work, um, because that will really help you hit on 
both what's the best, what are the best starting points for that subject area? Uh, what's the best content in what order? But also what are you injecting in that's kind of unique to you, um, which is really, really helpful. How do you get your own personality into those explanations? Uh, yeah, so I think that's a really good starting point. I really like that around um, just sort of hearing yourself talk about the subject and then naturally your voice will, will start to come through. And I suppose, yeah, like you, like you said, if, if you have the ability to, to maybe record the conversation with someone of your target audience, then that's just, that's that's an amazing opportunity, isn't it? To see how, oh, how you talk. And then I suppose, <laughs> is that just a case of practice, 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 and, and, and uh, sort of naturally finding your own voice so that you can then think it and then write it rather than have to sort of say it each time is it it's just an evolving process I suppose right? oh, absolutely and if you're you know if you're if you're thinking about a writing subject that you already teach then you'll have you'll have honed that over the years you know you will have tweaked your own lessons even if you're repeating the same lesson each, each year so you will have done a lot of that work already and you'll know how to make that immediate connection with your audience so absolutely use that in your work don't feel that you you should be imitating another writer whose work you read that you do you want to read other people's stuff to see what's out there and how people do it but you don't need to imitate anyone you want to try and put yourself on the paper so that you can make a connection with your audience in in this kind of unique and creative way that's a great tip brilliant well moving on to your your second uh, top tip as well so my second tip is sort of connected to this really and it's to ask silly questions and this is a tip i always share when i'm talking to um, young readers about being a nonfiction writer and how to kind of make their own nonfiction writing experience more interesting. And I would say like silly questions are a fantastic starting point. And I make the links with science as well, you know, um, scientists as well as writers obviously ask a lot of questions about the world around us. And they can be sensible questions, things like, oh, why is the sky blue? Um, you know, how many legs does an insect have and why? That's, that's great. But I think the silly unexpected questions are absolutely even better. And so much so that scientists actually have an award every year called the Ig Nobel Prizes, uh, where they sort of reward the funniest, the silliest questions asked and answered by scientists. And it's great fun to go on the Ig Nobel site and have a look at some of these. Um, and it's, you know, it's serious science kind of coming out of it. Uh, but questions like, um, you know, can twins tell themselves apart? Uh, why do older people get bigger ears? Or my absolute favourite, I think, was what um, is a cat liquid or solid? And it was actually a Nobel winning economist who, who asked that question, <laughs> the real Nobel Prize winning economist, who asked that question and then went on to answer it, um, leading to like a fascinating piece of writing that revealed that mathematically cats are in fact liquid. And we start to use that to explain all sorts of elements of cat behavior, especially their kind of crawling into little holes. So if you sort of step away from the, the sensible types of questions you might find listed on a curriculum, you sort of open up these new avenues for your own research, which also give you new ways into a subject area. And ultimately it's all about making connections. And that's kind of the source of all creativity really. Um, you don't need to be the world's best subject expert. You just need to kind of try and tap into that mindset of a really curious child 
exploring a subject and these things popping into the head. What about that? You know, what about that? And using those to explore the subject in a completely new and creative way. And that kind of curiosity, you know, that's the drive that gets people through writing as well. That's what would make it interesting because the types of questions that might pop up um, will be things based on experiences you have. You, you can only be creative with what you've already absorbed into your own head. And that's going to be based on everything you've done, kind of hobbies, things that you've loved reading about. This can all feed in and you can use these questions to make connections between those different areas and make that piece of non-fiction writing more personal to you. It works really well with children. Um, it works really well with, with adult writers as well. And when you're, you're learning to write, but also when you're trying to kind of pep up a certain area and get yourself enthusiastic about writing it. So if you can do that, then I think your enthusiasm comes across more on the page if you're actually excited about it. And of course, as a teacher, you're surrounded by children every day um, asking fantastic questions. Uh, one of my favourite experiences as a writer has been, I, for six years, I was the kind of science agony aunt for a children's science magazine, answering children's questions. And you just got the most fantastic questions sent on. Things like, I think my favourite was, can dogs swim in ice cream? And it was the jumping off point for a, an, you know, a whole article. And it just pushed me to research science I hadn't even thought about before, um, find out what scientists had done in that area and use that to answer the question. And it's kind of now led, you know, questions to this entire whole new bit, which is coming out quite soon next month called The Bedtime Book of Impossible Questions, which is just kind of full of more than 100 children's different questions and answering those um, using science, um, but also saying, you know, we can't answer everything, but it can be really great fun exploring um and that's a really good starting point for being a writer and a scientist <laughs> that's a great one and i suppose it goes back to the fundamentals of just science in general right i mean you have the you know like you said the the nobel prize winner or you know the greatest science in history have, have been dared have dared to, to ask those crazy big questions and then worked it back from there and, and tried to figure out you know why we're here or something in, in a really sort of you know uh, ethereal question and and some may say crazy question but actually when you ask those big questions you know you can get incredible um you know oh, absolutely. yeah it just makes it it makes it much more fun I think and I love when I go into schools and say you know what this, these are some silly questions silly questions have been asked before but you know you can ask me anything and every question is valid and we could go on a kind of adventure together if you start with this question um ask this question so it's a really nice thing to do I think and it just it leads you into a topic in an unexpected way, which I think is really important because ultimately when you're pitching work, you're trying to say, this is how my work is different from other people's um, writing. And that's a really kind of useful way to just, just to prompt yourself into looking at things differently. <laughs> All right, now moving on to your, your final and third top tip. Yeah, this is a very practical tip. Um, just thinking about the sort of support I've given to writers in the past as an editor. So 
it's to think really hard right from the start about how you research, how you carry out your research and put certain things in place so that you can be sure your writing is accurate. And you can also be sure you don't plagiarize anyone because if you're doing a lot of reading, perhaps over many months and you're doing it alongside your day job and you're taking lots and lots of notes, it's easy kind of six months later to completely forgot where something came from to even think, you know, maybe I, I wrote that sentence myself and then and then it might end up in the work and suddenly you've accidentally subconsciously kind of taken someone else's work, which is obviously um, something the publishers absolutely want to avoid uh, so they don't get in huge tangles of copyright law. So rather than focusing entirely on the creative side from the start and, and thinking I'll sort out the practicalities later, I think it really will pay off if you think hard about getting a system in place for yourself right from the start. So it's gonna start with identifying reliable and up-to-date sources for your work. And obviously this is where your subject knowledge as a teacher is gonna come in handy. Um, one rookie error is that people think, well, I'll cast around, I head straight for Wikipedia, but I see that as really bad practice and I never ever look at Wikipedia. You know, some people might argue you could use it as a starting point and go to the references and so on, but Wikipedia is another is another writer's, you know, a combination of writers' work. It is a certain take on a subject. So it's not actually a kind of fully blank sort of free-for-all what you need to do is is read widely and come up with your own take on it your own sense of what's important and what's going to be important for your reader um so i always avoid wikipedia together and i strongly strongly suggest that new writers do as well it's much more valuable to read original academic articles to read books on the subject you know you could set yourself a couple of months aside to just read widely um about a subject to really get a growing sense of it in your mind um, and if you read an interesting article online for example and I do often start with kind of desktop based research go and find that original research and read it too because again an article even if it's in a kind of like science news site for example that's still going to be that journalist take on that topic and if you go back and read the original research you'll find all kinds of gems in there and you might find that you interpret it slightly different better still interview the author themselves a lot of people don't know that um academics are allowed to share their articles their journal articles freely so even if you don't have access to uh, the expensive academic journals um, through your institution or a library you can if you if you see something you want to read in full you are totally free to email the author and ask uh, for a copy and you can have a chat about the things that academics are often really really keen to sort of share their research it's part of their um, own outreach work and they you know they'd love to kind of see their work written about other sources so don't be shy about in approaching um, people for more background on things. Obviously, I'm quite swayed towards science here, this is the area I write in, but um, it, the same goes for other um, areas of knowledge as well. And I'd insist on always finding two, if not three sources, three reputable sources for each fact, um, and make sure that they're not just sources that are repeating each other. So like, one's taken from the other on a web and they're all kind of like sort of clones of each other on a website just try and track down some information and using print resources as well you know even if it's just that you do all your initial research online and then you say I'm going to have one or two library days where I'm going to try and 
cross-reference everything using books because I know that they've been kind of um, researched very thoroughly. So you want to sort of start with that. And the other thing is you want to be reading quite a lot, a couple of levels above the level you're writing for. So if you're writing for primary or elementary students, don't just read things written for primary and elementary students because again, you're just gonna have someone else's sift of the information. You're gonna be regurgitating what they've written. What you need to do is be reading a few levels above, say I'd read, if I was writing for year sixes, I'd probably be reading content that would be taught to A-level, for example, and then picking out, getting to know the subject myself before completely re-scaffolding it um, in a way that I think is going to really help the year six is to understand it at an appropriate level. Um, also spend some time learning how to use Google search and Google Scholar very thoroughly. So keyword searches, using multiple keywords, using Boolean search operators, you know, you really need to kind of develop those skills. And it only takes about a morning of reading to, to, to get hugely different search results from everyone else. And then that's another really good way to kind of speed up the process really and drill down to what you want and it's obviously a lot of reading um and I know I said before it can be easy to kind of get really into the reading go down these kind of internet wormholes and take out little notes or copy and paste and suddenly you've got this big tangle of words and document and you don't know where they've come from so I would always um get some kind of template for note taking, both so that you can refer back, you can refer editors back in the future, you can refer readers back who, you know, email once the book is publishing, oh, what about this? Can I just ask a question about this? You can always refer back and know exactly where you found a piece of information. And it also makes sure you don't plagiarize your original source by separating your own words and ideas from um those notes that you've taken as you're researching so i'm i'm going to show you now a sort of example if you like of a template um that i've used to sort of structure the notes that i take it's partly based on the note taking methods i learned when i was doing my postgraduate research as well and over time you probably develop your own structure you know what you feel is most important there are a lot of different systems um in the past i've tried out things like color coding different um, subject areas using footnotes and so on you can record references as comments and give your work in google docs or in word um, but overall i find it really helpful to work like this reading record and to use different spaces on the page to record different types of information starting of course with full details of the resource itself so title author the date it's published the date you read it and where you found it so if it's a web link or a library code this can save hours of kind of searching time later on um, and then it's a really good idea to write a summary of what's in there. And obviously that comes after you've read what as much of that resource as you want to read. Just write yourself a two line summary of what are the key facts and ideas and themes you've found in that text, just to jog your memory. And then you might take your notes in whatever style you like to. I often either bold or underline direct quotes um, that I might want to use so I don't get them kind of mixed up with different materials and then 
in a completely separate place, I'll jot down my own ideas. So obviously, as you're reading and you're exploring a subject, you'll get brilliant. You might get phrases pop in your head. You might get connections of other things and, and things you want to include in the text and ideas of kind of mini stories or, or sort of flows of information, fat boxes. And you need to jot that down separately from your notes, just so you can keep those two things separated out but then easily sort of join them together when it comes to writing the book. Um, and this is another really good way to avoid plagiarizing someone else's work. If you just keep them separated out, keep your notes document separate and only start to bring them together in a separate draft manuscript document. And then I also, you'll see it right at the end, I've jotted down a space to follow up on things that I've read in the text. So those silly questions that are popping into my mind as I'm reading that particular reference source, I'll note down here and it will help me kind of go on to the next stage of my research. So obviously, you know, depends what I'm researching and in what depth, how much of that I fill in, but it could be a really helpful starting point for um, people who are quite new to writing to develop that sort of discipline in their note taking. Um, yeah, so I hope, I hope those tips are helpful. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, research and not, not, not ensuring you're not plagiarizing that sort of key parts of the writing process are there. And I especially like what you mentioned about, you know, there's a, if there's a particular text or, or source that you're interested in, and maybe you want to sort of dive a bit deeper to just email the author directly and just to start a conversation. That's really, that's a really interesting piece um, of advice. And have you, have you, you've done that of you a couple of times and, and heard back? Oh, absolutely. Back yeah. I mean, I, one of the publications I write for is the Week Genius Science and Nature, which is a children's science magazine and every article I've written has involved you know the research is involved interviewing an expert academic working in that area and feeding into feeding that into the article I've interviewed all kinds of people it's stunt I remember interviewing a stunt woman who worked in Hollywood and I I got such job envy because that job was amazingly fun and just so so different from kind of sitting writing in a desk um I've written whole books on kind of different weird and wonderful careers I interviewed a penguinologist who worked at Oxford University and you know he was talking about going out and all the different ways that you monitor penguins and the smell of the penguins and stuff you'd never get from just reading kind of written reference materials so it's fantastic and people are so happy to talk about their jobs and their research it's not like you know they've all got time to kind of go off and start writing for young people themselves so no, no one minds at all about sharing and then you credit them and then often would like a copy of the resource that you've produced and it kind of counts towards their own outreach kind of evidencing so they're always really happy to talk about things great stuff and I, the only downside is that it might make you want to change your career as well yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, too late to be a stunt person now but. <laughs> brilliant stuff all right moving on to my last uh, question um or, or sort of actually an isn members uh, last question uh, so the last question is, is submitted um from a member of our community um and the question is what are some good tools or digital apps um, that would help someone starting academic writing? Yeah, so I suppose academic writing is slightly different. I'm thinking of educational writing, and that's my sort of area. Um, 
I have had limited experience of academic writing, uh, i.e. writing for other academics to read, but I'm just going to focus on sort of educational writing, so either writing for other educators to read or writing for young audiences to read in educational settings. And I'd say in that situation, you really don't need more than either, you know, Google Docs or Word or, or a similar word processing program. You obviously would ideally need access to um, good internet connection, I suppose, uh, uh, an understanding of how to use Google and particularly Google Scholar um, beyond what the everyday sort of person does when they're researching is really helpful. But again, that's free. Um, there are a lot of apps and programs out there which are pitched at writers, which offer to kind of offer scaffolds or note taking or sort of I don't know time structuring maybe claim to kind of offer motivation but I actually don't use any of those things when I was writing um, as a postgraduate researcher I was using Envivo which is really handy for kind of logging academic papers and keeping notes but over time, I found that I actually wanted my notes together in a separate document. So I moved towards something more like my homemade template, um, which I showed you earlier, because I don't I don't want to have to be like opening multiple kind of apps to find my notes and sort of searching through. So I like one document for my notes and kind of fledgling ideas and one document as my kind of working plan, if you like, which I then use as a, as a template for the manuscript itself so really a very simple setup if you can get yourself um, registered as a member of an academic library as you know maybe through an old institution maybe through different partnerships or even going to your local public library and seeing can I register for access to certain journals that can be really really helpful but as I say sometimes you can get a quick overview of what's in a journal article via Google Scholar and if you're really really curious to read the rest of it then email the author of the article and ask if they can send you a copy which they're allowed to do and uh, are often just really happy to do so it's a low barrier to entry really and the key thing is not getting loads of expensive equipment or expensive workstation in place or waiting for the perfect time it's just a kind of write and pitch and get used to doing that and kind of demystify it in your own mind um, and learn to sort of not take it personally if an idea is not right for a publisher or an editor at that time but just to kind of keep on showing enthusiasm keep on sending ideas and that will very much get you in their minds I remember that a lot of educational texts much more so than in trade publishing and by trade publishing I mean for bookshops for kind of the consumer who will walk into shops educational publishing tends to be largely um, commissioned direct from the editor so the ideas will be developed in-house and then they'll start to think well who would be a good writer for this so if you can start sending information about yourself um not like reams and reams no one wants your whole life story but just send them examples of things you've already written send them um a letter explaining which subjects you're really enthusiastic about and why you'd be a great writer and why you're keen to do this then you're you know you'll be sort of top of their mind when they come to commissioning um in that subject area so i think it's just all about getting started the sooner the better and don't worry too much about being perfect and be a little bit kind of take all that there's a big industry built up around publishing which is about 
selling tips, selling advice um, and selling tools, but you actually don't need a lot of that. So take everything with a pinch of salt um, and be quite selective about what you take and, and realize that in the end, it's just about spending the time getting getting the writing done and, and pitch, pitch, pitch all the time, not getting too attached to one idea. <laughs> Love that message. Yeah, I think it's great that, you know, it's just the idea is the important part, isn't it? So if you have an idea, you don't need all these technical tools and all this sort of stuff, really. Um, the main thing is to have the idea, get out there, start talking about the subject, see how you sort of communicate naturally. Um, yeah, do the research and then just and just get writing. Um, yeah. Fundamentally, yeah, fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Isabel. That was uh, that was fascinating. And, and really, really, um, I, I know that these tips are going to be, be so useful for for our members and the wider community that are, that are keen to get get started in writing and, and becoming authors. Um, yeah, so thank you once again for your time. Uh, great conversation and um, yeah. Oh, thank, thank you so much. much. <laughs> Good luck, everyone. <laughs>